0: We all think about what we eat. We plan our meals or count carbs or do any number of other things when it comes to what we put in our bodies. But do you ever think about the flavor of what you consume? Sure you do. What we eat or drink either tastes good or it doesn't. In fact, taste is the number one consideration in what we consume. Yet, there's more to it than just like or dislike. And there's even a whole industry dedicated to it. Flavor is memory. Flavor is feeling. Flavor is science. Flavor is art. Flavor is Fona. Welcome to Fona's Flavor University podcast, where we explore the science, artistry, and industry behind flavor. Today, we'll be talking to Molly Zimmerman, Fona's Beverage Innovation Manager, and Jenna Tish, our Beverage Industry Manager. We'll be discovering flavor science and building flavor. It's apropos that you two are here today, especially when we're talking about innovation and renewal and creation and so on. I mean, Spring outside, the weather's getting warmer, innovation is happening, things are growing, it's very exciting. Uh, I finally went for a walk. (laughs) I saw people. I mean, it's a new day. Anyways. So to begin properly, we have Molly Zimmerman and Jenna Tish here today. I'm going to ask you guys to go ahead and introduce yourself. Molly, if you do us the honor.
1: Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm Molly Zimmerman, and I'm the Innovation Manager for Beverage at Fona. And what that means is I take the insights and data that Jenna finds, and I turn them into something you can taste. I got into food because I've always been in food. I grew up in food. I've always wanted to be a chef, but I decided at some point in my career that I wanted to sleep. So I decided to not go into fine dining and I decided to go into research and development. I worked in coffee for a while and then I made my way on over to Fona.
2: Hi everyone, I'm Jenna Tisch, industry manager on Fona's beverage marketing team.
1: I have a little bit of a varied
2: Background, uh, spent some time in different industries, but happily found my way into the food space about two years ago when, out of happenstance, I was contacted by a recruiter, and it's been career love ever since. I love, absolutely love what I'm doing, and I have such a fun time every single day talking about flavor. For me, it's so exciting to be part of consumers' memories and the fact that they're using food as comfort or nourishment. And so, just being able to touch many people's lives in that way. Is kind of special
0: so just because i'm allowed to make dad jokes now uh would you say that it was love at first bite
2: <laughs> did i say love at first taste because that's what i meant in my head
0: you didn't but still i understand what you meant
2: well but we do work on the beverage team so maybe it's love at first sip
0: mm-hmm hmm mm, Even better, even better. So you both work with innovation at FONA. As a matter of fact, we've had a few people with it in their title already. Why don't you guys go ahead and tell me what innovation means? I know it's probably... Well, what do you think innovation is, Corey? Well, we'd have turned it around on the host, huh? Mm-hmm. So if I had to say what innovation <laughs> is, it's creating something new that either didn't exist or using other elements that did exist to make something new.
1: That's a good start. I think a lot of people think of innovation as like something brand new and shiny and very different that they've never seen before. And to some extent, that's true. But if you boil it down to the most simple factor, it's something different that generates revenue. It could be anything, right? It could be a new flavor. It could be a new process. It could be a cost-savings initiative. Innovation is very simple, and it is not necessarily big and shiny and scary like people think it is. What do you think, Jenna? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the detriments
2: of innovation is putting it on a pedestal, and that's a little too limiting, right? So when you allow yourself to see innovation as doing something differently in a way that's better than it was before is really the key to finding achievable innovation.
1: Yeah, and innovation is a process, right? It's not a goal.
0: So these definitions that you've come up with, Did these come to you over time? Is this something you've done research on to actually know what innovation was before you started to work with it?
1: Yeah, I think that innovation comes with experience, right? You see what works and what doesn't. You get a handle for how your particular industry innovates, and then you can use that as a blueprint to innovate in the future, right? So utilizing those different categories of innovation within what product you're making can be very vastly different.
2: Yeah, and I think on the marketing side, innovation is such a buzzword and maybe it's overused a little bit, dare I say, even though I do love innovation. (laughs) So when I think about innovation, I just think about creativity and kind of no bounds. And eventually, like Molly said, it is a process and you get to where you need to be, but it's not in defined stages that you've set out for yourself.
0: So if there's no stages and with creativity, there's no limits, obviously. How do you break this down? How do you take a large topic such as innovation and make it into different types?
1: Yeah, so what we do is we take innovation and we break it down into three subcategories. The first category is called masterful ubiquity. This means that you've taken something that everybody does and you do it better than everybody else. If you have a chocolate flavor, you have the best dang chocolate flavor that anybody has ever tasted, right? That's how you do innovation with something that's familiar. The next level we talk about is called approachable adventure. So you take something that everybody knows and you pair it with something people don't know. So the the first example of approachable adventure is strawberry kiwi right? Nobody knew what a kiwi was back in 1992 or whenever it came out, but everybody knew what a strawberry was. So the barrier was lower for what people understood. They understood strawberry and they said, hey, I like strawberry. I'm going to try this even though I don't know what the heck a kiwi is. So using that strategy is proven over time to get people to try things that they might not have tried otherwise. The third bucket is transformational innovation, and transformational innovation is kind of what people think of when they think of innovation, right? It's the iPhones of the world. It's the Teslas of the world. It's those ideas that are so far out there that consumers never asked for them, and it's very hard to hit. It takes up a lot of time. It can take up a lot of money, but when you hit one, you really make it big. Right. So it is important to think about transformational innovation. But if you think about innovation as a pie, transformational innovation will be the smallest part of the pie, but it has the largest potential to grow your pie overall. But approachable adventure should probably be the largest piece of your pie, even though it's just continuously chugging along at in innovation. The masterful ubiquity part. I see as table stakes, right? If you're going to play an in innovation, you have to have a solid foundation within your product of what innovation means to you. Does that make any sense? And Jenna, what do you think? Yeah, so from the marketing perspective, I, I recall taking
2: some consumer behavior classes during college and, and we talked about transformational innovation, though of course in academic language, it's not with that specific label. But my takeaway was really that As marketers and as product developers, we can't tell a consumer what transformational innovation is. We need to be out observing and understanding where there's opportunity because a consumer can't conceptualize A new product. They always benchmark it with things that they have that are existing. So that may be more of an approachable adventure way to think of innovation. But if you were to ask consumers back in the 80s if they were going to be able to access all of the information ever known to mankind through a mobile device, they would have never given you the solution of an iPhone. They would have said, well, maybe the phone should be cordless so that we can travel with it instead. So what we really need to do is to Take kind of an ethnographic approach to innovation and not try to dictate or lead consumers down a path. And leading the witness? Yes, right, exactly. By leading the horse consumers to water.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And to all my teachers who asked me if I thought I'd have a calculator in my back pocket in real life, yes. Yes, I do.
2: Take that. Take that.
0: (laughs) But also, a kiwi is indeed a flightless bird as well as a nice fruit, as well. So
1: that's true. I was talking about the fruit, not the bird. Indeed. But. So,
0: if we have our three buckets of masterful, approachable, adventure, and transformational, do you guys have any specific to you examples of each one of those, like something you did, Jenna?
2: So not what I did personally, but actually, Corey, this is where we turn the mic on you. And we have a little bit of a surprise for you to demonstrate which each one of these categories could look like in terms of flavor. So we were doing our research and listening to our prior podcasts with our awesome co-workers where we heard that you've never tried kombucha before.
0: That is 100% true. So
2: surprise,
1: that's what you're trying today.
0: I'm very scared.
1: <laughs> Don't be scared. It's not scary. I'm, I'm ready for okay, a flavor. It's a little scary, but like it's going to be really fun.
0: Okay, well, I'm ready for some you know approachable adventure. Let's do it. Yes.
1: Well, we have all three represented in one product, right? So it's not just about the format, right? Mm-hmm. Like within one category, within one very specific beverage, kombucha, there are examples of masterful ubiquity, approachable adventure and transformational innovation, like something so wild and out there that Jenna and I were both like, what does that even mean? So we have them for you to taste and for me to taste because I want to.
0: So let's talk about, before we do this taste test, um, which awesome, by the way, this is a uh, flavor university first. Let's talk about what kombucha traditionally
1: is. Yeah, kombucha is just fermented tea, right? So it has a very low level of alcohol, usually about less than 0.5% alcohol by volume, but it's just sour. To me, it kind of tastes like vinegar, but it has a lot of gut health properties that people think are really great for you. And that's primarily the reason why people drink it and they like the taste. Yeah. And on the marketing
2: positioning side, a lot of it is very focused on gut health, but it's also focused on like a wellness kind of tonic perspective. So consumers are always looking for more health benefits from the food and beverages that they consume. And this has been a category that's really skyrocketed when we pair tea with added benefits. It's really kind of a win-win, especially for health-focused millennials and Gen Z.
1: Yeah, and I think that's great because it ties into our first sample. So if we're talking about general overall wellness, one of the big stars of overall wellness right now is elderberry. So the first flavor we have for you, which is our representative of masterful ubiquity, is an elderberry kombucha. So let's taste that one first.
0: So before I go into taste this, I just want to let our listeners know we've got three different kombucha flavors here. One is quite dark, almost a raspberry looking. Uh, the one next to that is kind of a pink and the last is kind of a champagne color. So we're going to be sampling each one and I guess we're going with the elderberry one first. Yep,
1: we're going with the elderberry one first.
0: Okay, here we go. Bottoms up. Cheers.
1: Cheers. To your health. To your gut health.
0: <laughs> I actually like that a lot. I yeah. really do. I did not expect that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very sour. It's not too sweet, mm-hmm. but it has a nice Juicy berry back note, right? Mm -hmm. So something that's approachable to people, like elderberry, and it has those like deep blueberry, almost raspberry-like quality to it, and it's just really refreshing. I might mix it with some other things, like maybe some vodka and call it a day, but that's just me. Just a quick note here, the, the TTB may or may not approve,
2: we are no, in no way endorsing adding alcohol to your kombucha. Whatever you do on your weekends is up to you. That's
0: your business. I got to say, from an outsider's perspective, when I, I tasted the vinegar, the upside mm. of vinegar that you were talking about, and I definitely, on the back of my tongue, got that last note of sweetness of the mm. berry.
2: So Corey, do you consume beer?
0: Uh, Not often, but yes. Okay,
2: so this could almost be like a sour ale, right? Where it's kind of fruity, but it's got that kind of tanginess. And so I was surprised to see or to hear that you liked it just because kombucha can be pretty polarizing depending on the consumer. And so I was going to speculate that if you did drink beer that had some sourness and tartness, you were kind of familiar to that, but I guess you're just very adventurous. I'm
0: i am definitely adventurous, but I'm also a big fan of hard ciders. Mm. So I'll, I'll definitely give that a shot before I'll go for a beer, just because I expect that little tart and that a little sweet at the end. It's kind of like the reward for me.
2: Yeah. And so that's it. You bring up that really interesting point. So when we're tasting, we always have associations to other products. So you have not tried kombucha before, but in your mind, you and your palate may have been kind of anchoring some... Some of the off notes with what you've tasted before in beverages that you do like. And therefore you're more apt to like this or more apt to at least not dislike this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and before talking with you two, I honestly thought that kombucha had something to do with cabbage. I'm not kidding you.
1: Oh, that probably sounds kimchi. very silly. Kimchi. That's what it was. That's yeah, what it there was. are a lot of fermented cabbages in the world, including kimchi, but I mean, fermentation as a whole is a very large category to talk about in terms of innovation, right? A lot of innovation has been around fermentation and alcohol and kombucha and even kimchi. So yes, it could have been a cabbage thing, but it is not. It is fermented tea. And you I had the K's, right? Uh,
0: yeah. yeah, I was close. And I do, I do know that in Asian culture, fermenting is a lot of what, you know, what has been done. They have those hundred-year-old eggs. They do uh, the kimchi that I'm thinking of. They have those large salt pots that they store things in for years at a time.
1: Yeah, a lot of it is about preservation, right, Mm -hmm. and how we preserved things in the past and carrying that tradition forward, but optimizing it through flavor, right? So how do we make it friendly for our lifestyle today and something that people would want to drink? We add flavors to it that are super fun and different. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, it's almost like going back retro right 90s trends are coming back and ancient Asian traditions for beverages and different food products are now reaching the mass right it's yeah. very cool very I was cool listening
0: stuff. to 90s uh, uh, I love the 90s on the way here so yeah definitely
2: you know I just'm I'm, I'm imagining my watermelon lip smuckers right yeah <laughs> So just a a quick kind of sidebar, elderberry is actually mainstream flavor on bonus flavor radar for 2021. So the rise in popularity, and I know Pamela Askerson talked about this, but the rise in popularity in association with immunity, which has been a really big need state that consumers are so focused on because of the pandemic, has really had that flavor rise to the top as one of the flavors that are now pretty recognizable for most consumers.
0: When I think of elderberry, like, in my head, I'm literally picturing Gandalf as a berry. Like, big (laughs) peanut. I don't know why. Um, Like an old berry? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, Obviously not that. But anyways, moving on, what will we have next?
1: So, up next, we have... Lychee Rose, which doesn't sound that approachable, right? Like, because lychee is kind of exotic, but when we're talking about kombucha, the customer and the end consumer is a lot more adventurous than your everyday customer. So, the variations of flavors of kombucha that are out there are as wide as you can imagine. So, lychee Rose to us, represented including botanicals in an interesting way and pairing it with something familiar that being lychee which is a fruit so pulling in those botanicals those petals that spring-like vibe into your kombucha it tastes like perfume Mm -hmm.
0: yep i'm definitely getting the roses smell taste out of that like a rose water if you will yeah um the color of that i was actually looking for it to taste almost like a like a a dessert champagne or a dessert Mm -hmm. wine, if you will. But yeah, I definitely, after, after exhaling, got the roses and whatnot. Now the lychee, that's, that's a, a, it's the fuzzy one. It's kind of looks like it has hair on it, right?
1: It looks like spiky on the outside and you peel it and it's very pale pink on the inside. It kind of looks like an eyeball. It's a little creepy, but they taste really great and they have a very floral taste on their own. So pairing them with rose is a very classical pairing in Asia and it's, it kind of enhances both flavors because they're synergistic. They're very similar. So they just bring each other up, right?
0: And that's something you guys kind of strive for in innovation is, is some sort of synergy or synergistic you know, means.
1: Yeah, you could look at it a couple of ways. You could do synergy, so like lychee and rose, or you could do contrast, so like mint and lime, something cool with something sour. You could look at it a variety of different ways, but synergy in, in terms of flavor can really help the overall flavor perception of what you're drinking.
0: So I guess we'll move on to our last taste here. I've got kind of the champagne-looking one. It's a little yellow in color, very bubbly, just like the rest.
1: Yep. And this one, Jenna sent me a picture from the grocery store. And I looked at it, and I was like, what is that even supposed to taste like? And the flavor you're going to be tasting is peach, marigold, basil, kombucha.
2: And just a fun little anecdote, what we found is that, or there's this kind of old wives tale within the beverage industry that consumers are more willing to try very adventurous flavors when it's in a beverage because it feels low commitment. So hence, I'm sure what the brand was maybe going for when they paired these three unique flavors together.
1: Yeah. But this is definitely an example of transformational innovation, right? Like who's doing this? Nobody's doing this. It's really cool to see this level of really interesting flavor pairing happening outside of fine dining. Yeah, very
2: much what we see is usually two flavors being paired. And so the fact that it's three flavors being kind of a trio is really emulating more of the mixology type of approach.
0: It's also kind of unique for me to hear of flowers like being used in You know, in drinks or in food or whatever, because, I mean, you see them on the side of the road and you're like, oh, those are pretty. I don't think about eating them.
1: (laughs) Right. And new botanicals are a huge space that has come out of mixology in these high-end bars When we think of botanicals, we think of rose, we think of lavender or chamomile, those things that are traditionally used in tea, but the new botanicals that are edible like marigold or dandelion or osmanthus, which is on our flavor radar in the novel category, which is way far out there, but very tasty and very delicate floral flavors are being incorporated more into beverage overall. So and another thing to think about too, Corey,
2: is that botanicals may reinforce this kind of healthy positioning that kombucha has. So the individual who is consuming kombucha maybe somebody that's shopping at natural stores. They may be into health and wellness, potentially hiking outdoors. And so the positioning or incorporating florals makes a lot of sense with that consumer. So it's all about really making sure that the flavor can be a strategic way to reinforce the product positioning and to entice your consumers.
0: And I just tasted the last one that we're speaking of here. And this one reminds me a lot of like a spritzer, like a wine spritzer. You know, the, the first, like when you're a kid, the little taste you get, you know, from your parents, you know, you know, like, okay, try this. Just not as sweet. Um, and I definitely had the thought that these are probably, these, these are all cold. Uh, first of all, that we've, we've tasted. And if I were to consume them, I would want them that way. Cause they, it's adds to my experience being more refreshing, more enjoyable.
1: Yeah. And I think you've touched on something there about the alcohol experience, right? So wine, we don't talk about it as this tastes like grapes, right? We say it has notes of peach or plum or raspberry, or even osmanthus and marigold and all these other notes. I think people are embracing that in other beverage categories as well. So even in kombucha, this has notes of peach and marigold and basil, but it's very refreshing. It's very light. It's very subtle. It doesn't beat you over the head with the flavor. And I think consumers are getting more and more accepting of those subtle nuances being important to beverage.
0: And I could see as I was giving that description, Jenny, you kind of lit up a little bit. Was there something that hit off for you? Something that
1: I just
2: light up anytime Molly
1: talks. (laughs) But
2: I was kind of thinking about almost like a a unique spin on a peach Bellini, right? Because we were getting just a little bit of the peach notes and it wasn't overwhelming. I am not a peach person. I like fresh peaches from Georgia or from Florida when I visit my parents. But otherwise, peach belongs in yogurt to me. But this tasted really nice because I was getting some of the other notes
1: that made it taste less um, artificial, for lack of a better term. Well, and it made it taste more adult, right? It didn't taste like a kid's drink. And it there's no trade-off anymore with alcohol, right? That's what's behind the whole zero-proof cocktail movement. We don't call them mocktails anymore. This is not a mocktail that is trying to be a peach bellini. It's a zero-proof cocktail that has all the nuance and all of the finesse that a traditional cocktail would have just with none of the alcohol. And that's been really big in innovation and in beverage.
0: So we're tasting, definitely for me, something very new. And thank you, by the way, I really did enjoy that. <laughs> um, big fan now. But I want to talk about, like, as you said, I'm, I'm a little adventurous when it comes to what I eat or what I, you know, what I ingest. And that's, you know, probably due to my upbringing, my parents and so on, definitely introducing me to something new all the time. Can you guys tell me some kind of like, what are some stumbling blocks for innovation? What's, what's, what's going to fight innovation?
2: So I think there's two things. The first that's going to fight innovation or success and innovation is status quo. We cannot have innovation and we can't progress if we are okay living in status quo or the way that things have always been. And then the second is innovation isn't going to succeed if consumers don't want that specific innovation or they don't see a specific need for that innovation. All innovation needs to be driven by consumers and not our egos as marketers or as product developers. We all have those projects that we are very kind of connected to on a personal level or maybe we've championed. But at the end of the day, if it's not something that the consumer needs or wants, the innovation is going to die.
1: And I think a big part of that is delineating what is research, what have you found through your observations and your learnings and your experiments, and what is me-search, right? What are your opinions that you're projecting onto this product that you think could be successful? How do you remove the me-search from the equation to get to what the consumer really needs so that you can innovate?
2: And you bring up a good point, Molly. What would you say is the difference between me-search and a
1: gut instinct or gut health instinct if we're talking <laughs> about You're funny. Um, I think me-search is not founded in any rational data or evidence, right? If you have a gut instinct that's based on an observation you made, That may not be deemed research by the general populace, but it's still valid and it's still useful. And that's how you get to transformational innovation is following these gut instincts that other people didn't follow, right? It's not about taking away your bias. It's not about removing the me-search. It's identifying when you are operating under bias and identifying what is me-search so that you can get to the heart of the innovation. Yeah, because at the end of the day, you have to have creativity to be mm-hmm. able to foster
2: innovation, but you can't be so determined to make something work that just at the end of the day isn't needed by the market.
0: And I have to say, I was doing my own research as I was sitting here. I know I can see I can see Jenna <laughs> making you know d- kind of uh, unhappy glances at me. Um, you had mentioned a a mint lime flavor Mm -hmm. and instantly due to my preconceived notions of mint because i don't like it i was like nope i'm out tap you know that's a hard pass on me but yeah i can definitely see where i would have to separate myself from that preconceived notion
2: so you bring up a good point Corey. what is your preconceived notion about mint or what is your kind of anchor descriptors of mint or a specific experience you had with Mm -hmm. mint that made you not like it
0: I can't say these on a podcast. Okay. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. tell us. No, no, no. I, I will absolutely tell you. Um, and my wife has identified this as well. And this actually goes back to what we discussed in our first podcast with Dr. Bob was, you know, memory and how that plays a game with flavor. Mm-hmm. And for me, I obviously like everyone have to brush my teeth somehow, right? So although when, you know, when I go to like take any kind of medicines or anything like that, if it's mint, I, I have to find another flavor, but yeah, uh, I use a certain brand of toothpaste that to me tastes like root beer, but everyone else calls it wintergreen. So again, that's my brain playing that game with me, being like, oh, okay, you know, this is this is okay. My mint problems go back to when I was a child, and my mother trying to get me to have a piece of gum because I, I had indigestion, my stomach was not feeling well. So she was like, here, try this mint piece of gum. Well, my feeling in tandem with this new flavor caused a reaction most would uh, try to stay away from. And ever since then, I have successfully, other than my toothpaste.
2: So there's so many different types of mint, right? So does that cloud your interest in other types of mint, like a peppermint mocha
1: or like a mojito, that kind of mint?
0: 100%. Wow.
1: All mint. Yep. It speaks to polarizing flavors, right? You have a very specific negative response that has carried through life. But a lot of flavors are polarizing. Mint is not the only polarizing flavor. I think of coconut as a very polarizing flavor. People either love it or they hate it. So if you're going to innovate with coconut, if you're going to use that as a flavor in your product, you need to understand that you're probably cutting out half the population and that's okay, right? Like you don't have to make everything so mainstream that everybody's going to love this. I think a good example of that was a couple year, years ago, a large burger chain put out a ghost pepper fries or a ghost pepper burger or something like that. And in the commercial, they said, in our testing, people said this was too hot. We didn't listen, right? Like the vast majority of people are going to think this is too hot, but the people who want it spicy really want it spicy. The people who like mint really like mint. The people who like coconut really like coconut. And that segment of the population is still valid and you can still innovate for them. Absolutely. Own it
2: and be authentic to your consumers and to your brand. And I think that'll go a long way.
0: So let's talk about improvement. How do we improve innovation? How do we improve if I'm marketing or if I'm making a flavor for that group of people that only likes coconut? you know, and they know what it's supposed to taste like. They know what they want. How do you improve upon that and make that into your masterful bucket of innovation?
1: I think you need to look at the marketplace first and see what you don't want to do, right? Look out there and see like, oh, these are the 10 coconut products and I don't like any of them. What would I change? How do I get it closer to a real coconut? Maybe bring in fresh coconuts and hack them open with one of those little machete. machete. Machete? Yeah, hack them open with a machete and eat the coconut fresh right out of the coconut. Identify the pieces of coconut that are important to you and important to your consumer, and then translate that into your product.
0: So we take these new innovations, and clearly we're not making these on our own. So we're working with our scientific partners, and we're trying to figure out how to, A, make it work, but B, make it recreatable. How does the lab and marketing kind of work together to come up with these innovative solutions?
2: So first, I just want to say, and Molly, you are the one to credit with this. Innovation is everyone's responsibility. And so it cannot just be one-sided. It can't just be marketing. It can't just be product development. It's going to work best when it's synergistic, creative, and it's a safe space for collaboration without judgment. So typically how we work uh, on the innovation side at Fona is we brainstorm and we think of what are the trends and really grounding our ideas in data, but then making it actionable to what would actually resonate with consumers and what could be commercialized. That's always something that we keep in mind. And Molly, you're nodding, so you look like you're going to add on to this. Yeah,
1: I think one big thing is we start with a theme, right? To have actionable innovation and innovation that can be translated and scaled and viable for the marketplace, you need to start where you want to end up. So if we say our theme is inner beauty, we want to figure out a beverage for inner beauty. We have to back up and build that from the ground up through data, right? So we figure out what people want to drink, how they want to drink it, how often they want to drink it. Do they want to drink it in the morning? What flavors are appealing? What functionals are appealing? To build a full concept so that you can take that data and share it out so that the customer can understand what they're tasting. Then you get consumer validation. They taste it. And then it goes on from there.
0: So as it goes on, obviously, we can't control what people think. We can't control how they feel about certain things. Obviously, you'll never change my mind about mint. That's just how it is. I'm
2: not going to try to. But you know what? We've got you with marigold, So I feel like that's a win. Yeah. Word.
0: <laughs> but let's talk about when innovation fails. What does it mean for an innovation to fail?
2: So I kind of alluded to this a little bit before, but innovation fails when consumers aren't ready and they don't see a need for that specific innovation.
1: I think a good example of a failed innovation is purple ketchup, right? Like, can you do it? Sure. Should you do it? I don't think so. Like, ketchup is ketchup for a reason. Like, don't touch my ketchup. Well, the interesting thing with that, though,
2: is you're targeting parents who are purchasing ketchup, right? So the children might have liked purple ketchup. But did the parent want to purchase something that isn't the associated color or that maybe had some artificial type of insinuation through the color? And so once again, thinking about your consumer, what do they want? What have they asked for? What are they ready for is really important.
1: And you also have to think about the unintended consequence of whatever you're developing as well. So as a parent, I see purple ketchup and I think that's going to stain everything in my house and I'm not going to buy it, right? So you have to think about what are those other things that are going to affect purchase intent or liking of your product.
0: I think the purple ketchup uh, came out as a line, purple, green, Green. uh, and it was in tandem with the release of Shrek is what I remember.
1: That's very entertaining. I did not know that. Shrek is a great movie.
0: So if failure, if we're trying to stay away from failure and innovation, or what do we learn from it? Is it a part of innovation? Is it, is it something we try to stray from?
1: No, I think failure is a big part of innovation. I think it's necessary to move forward. The only things that I like to think about in terms of failure for innovation are, did you learn from the failure and did you fail fast? The goal of failing fast is to identify where you can improve to innovate further. So you have to be okay with failing and you have to be okay with failing fast. And you also have to be okay with the fact that 90% of what you do is never going to see the light of day, right? Like I talked to my mom, she's like, what'd you do all day? I'm like, Oh, I don't know, you know, made some stuff. And, you know, I can't really talk about a lot of the things I do because, you know, we want to be careful with people's information, but When you have something that comes out for the world, it's that much better because you get to be like, hey, mom, I did this. This is mine. And it makes the 90% worth it, right? Like 90% of what I do is behind closed doors and nobody's ever going to see it. And that's okay. But that 10% really makes all the difference.
0: So let's kind of round this out and ask you what's your innovation philosophy? What are your takeaways for innovation?
2: So I can start, uh, once again, be
1: creative and collaborate. I think my number one innovation philosophy is try everything, right? Like it sounds broad, but it was inspired by a incident. Is it an incident? Something that happened to me that challenged my preconceived notions, right? So I was working on a project where I was working on hot chocolate and we had a bunch of different flavors of hot chocolate and we were trying to pair them up with different flavors of syrups, right? So I went through the list. I made me a little Excel spreadsheet and I was like, okay, this hot chocolate will pair with this syrup and this one will pair with that. And no, I'm not going to taste that. Cause that would be gross. And then I got to salted caramel, hot chocolate with a blueberry syrup. And I looked at it and I was like, I don't think this is going to be good. This is not going to taste good. And then I remembered that when I worked in fine dining, I had made a caramel where instead of using cream and butter, I added blueberry puree. And I thought, you know, it's so crazy, it just might work right? Like it doesn't sound like it'll be good, but I'm going to try it anyway. So I tried it and it was my favorite of the bunch, right? Like the toasty caramel with the chocolate and the bright blueberry. It was just such a religious experience of flavor. There was so much going on there that it really challenged me to try every combination, even if I thought it was not going to be good, right? make sure you're vetting all of your flavors and make sure you're understanding how those flavors are pairing together before you dismiss something. You have to try everything. So Molly, I'm just envisioning Veruca
2: salt from Lily (laughs) Wanka, who, as we know, turns into the blueberry, right? So maybe it's a Veruca salted caramel blueberry and I want it now. Ooh.
0: Come with me, and you'll be in a world of pure phone
2: innovation. innovation. <laughs> <laughs> but also, Yay. right, Willy Wonka could be somebody to take inspiration from, right? It, mm-hmm. They just when we when they went in the factory, there was anything that they could imagine. There was no limits. Yep, the
1: snozberries taste like snozberries.
0: I'm still trying all the wallpapers. Nothing works so far. <laughs> <Of course.
1: laughs> oh, that was good.
0: So let's end this how we end all of our flavor universities. I'm going to ask you some quick questions. I'll start with Molly and just answer the first thing that comes to your mind. And we'll ask for explanation if we need it, but try to keep it short. What is your favorite flavor?
1: Dark chocolate truffle. Why? Because it's unctuous and it reminds me of very fancy French desserts.
0: What is a flavor out there right now that you can't stand, that other people are just bonanza about it, and you just can't stand it? Like, you don't understand the hype?
1: I don't know. I don't really understand the hype of olives, but that's not really a flavor. That's a food. They're kind of gross, though. There's too much going on. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's, like, sweet and briny and salty and fatty and vinegary all at the same time, which, like, sounds like it should be a good thing. And, like, in my heart of hearts, I know I should like them, but I just can't get behind it.
0: That's very coincidental because our last guest, Jennifer Howell, was also not a big fan of olives or avocados. Couldn't get behind that either.
1: See, I love avocados. Jen, girl, you got that wrong, but I agree with you on the olive thing.
0: Last question. What is a flavor that brings you back?
1: Lemons
0: and I'll leave it there for that. <laughs> if somebody else wants to fight, figure that one out or ask Molly about that one, please be my guest. She she looks like she wants to tell.
1: Yeah, come on down. We'll <laughs> chat anytime about flavors.
0: Jenna, let's start with you. Uh, what's your least favorite flavor?
2: My least favorite flavor, and I know that this is controversial, but maple. To me, when I taste maple, it's sticky, and the only place that belongs is on my pancakes or my French toast.
0: Is there something you won't eat, though? Is there a flavor you won't eat?
2: Honestly, no, I'm pretty open and pretty adventurous. I'm the person when I'm ordering at a coffee shop, I want to try the most out there type of beverage, maybe because I work in it, or maybe because I am the living embodiment of approachable adventure. (laughs) (laughs) So what's your favorite flavor? Once again, controversial, Corey. Banana. And I'm talking banana Laffy Taffy doesn't really taste like actual banana. I get in fights with coworkers. It's very, uh, it's polite fights, right? So HR doesn't need to be
1: involved, but. As long as you recognize that it doesn't actually taste like banana, I can accept this about you. It doesn't taste like banana, but it tastes like banana. That doesn't necessarily mean it tastes bad. It just doesn't taste like banana.
2: But once again, that's somewhat nostalgic. And I think that that's A little bit having to do with memories, right? My mom likes banana flavors like that, so all of my sisters do. We like circus peanuts and banana laffy taffies or even, you know, banana splits. So all that to say, if there's anybody that has banana candy that they don't want or olives, I will happily take them.
0: So is that also your flavor that brings you back?
2: I would say so, yeah. Otherwise, key lime pie brings me back, uh, and that's to, like, warm summer days and visiting my parents who live in Florida. So anything's good with a little bit of gram.
0: Great. All right. So we finished our quick questions. Last takeaway, one sentence, go.
2: Stay inspired and continue innovating. Try
1: everything.
0: Awesome. Thank you. So we're starting something new here on the podcast. Uh, We're asking our current guests to nominate future guests to join us here at Flavor University. So Molly, why don't you start us off and give us a nomination?
1: I would like to nominate Becca Genovese, our flavorist. And why? Because, girl, you got to get out here and share your knowledge.
2: And I'd like to recommend Jess Lopez, who is another flavorist on the beverage team. Just excited for you to share your creativity, knowledge, and amazing flavors with our audience.
0: All right. Becca, Jess, you heard him. We're looking for you.
2: Tag your it. <laughs>
0: All right, well, that's it for Fona's Flavor University podcast. Thanks to our guests, Molly Zimmerman and Jenna Tish. Please tune in next time. And until then, the flavor of Fona is the flavor of life. So go out and taste it.